Chapter Eight, Part One of the Confessions of Arsène Lupin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Confessions of Arsène Lupin by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter Eight, Lupin's Marriage. Monsieur Arsène Lupin has the honor to inform you of his approaching marriage with Mademoiselle Angélique de Sarzeau Vendôme, Princess de Bourbon Condé, and to request the pleasure of your company at the wedding, which will take place at the Church of Saint Clotilde. The Duc de Sarzeau Vendôme has the honour to inform you of the approaching marriage of his daughter Angélique, Princesse de Bourbon-Condé, with M. Arsène Lupin, and to request. Jean, Duc de Sarzeau Vendôme, could not finish reading the invitations which he held in his trembling hand. Pale with anger, his long lean body shaking with tremors. There, he gasped, handing the two communications to his daughter. This is what our friends have received. This has been the talk of Paris since yesterday. What do you say to that dastardly insult, Angélique? What would your poor mother say to it if she were alive? Angélique was tall and thin like her father, skinny and angular like him. She was thirty-three years of age, always dressed in black stuff, shy and retiring in manner, with a head too small in proportion to her height, and narrowed on either side until the nose seemed to jut forth in protest against such parsimony and yet it would be impossible to say that she was ugly, for her eyes were extremely beautiful, soft and grave, proud and a little sad, pathetic eyes which to see once was to remember. She flushed with shame at hearing her father's words, which told her the scandal of which she was the victim. But as she loved him, notwithstanding his harshness to her, his injustice and despotism, she said, "'Oh, I think it must be meant for a joke, father, to which we need pay no attention.' a joke why every one is gossiping about it a dozen papers have printed the confounded notice this morning with satirical comments they quote our pedigree our ancestors our illustrious dead they pretend to take the thing seriously still no one could believe of course not but that doesn't prevent us from being the byword of paris it will all be forgotten by to-morrow "'Tomorrow, my girl, people will remember that the name of Angélique de Sarzeau-Vendôme has been bandied about as it should not be. Oh, if I could find out the name of a scoundrel who has dared!' At that moment, Hyacinthe, the duke's valet, came in and said that Monsieur le duc was wanted on the telephone. Still fuming, he took down the receiver and growled, "'Well, who is it?' "'Yes, it's the duc de Sarzeau-Vendôme speaking.' A voice replied, "'I want to apologize to you, Monsieur le duc.' and to mademoiselle angelique it's my secretary's fault your secretary yes the invitations were only a rough draft which i meant to submit to you unfortunately my secretary thought but tell me monsieur who are you what monsieur le duc don't you know my voice the voice of your future son-in-law what arsene lupin the duke dropped into a chair his face was livid arsene lupin it's he arsene lupin angelique gave a smile you see father it's only a joke a hoax but the duke's rage broke out afresh and he began to walk up and down moving his arms i shall go to the police the fellow can't be allowed to make a fool of me in this way if there's any law left in the land it must be stopped hyacinthe entered the room again he brought two visiting cards chotois le petit don't know them they are both journalists monsieur le duc what do they want 
they would like to speak to Monsieur le Duc with regard to... the marriage. "'Turn them out!' exclaimed the Duke. "'Kick them out! And tell the porter not to admit scum of that sort to my house in future.' "'Please, father,' Angelique ventured to say. "'As for you, shut up! If you had consented to marry one of your cousins when I wanted you to, this wouldn't have happened.' The same evening one of the two reporters printed, on the front page of his paper, a somewhat fanciful story of his expedition to the family mansion of the Sarzeau Vendômes in the Rue de Varennes, and expatiated pleasantly upon the old nobleman's wrathful protests. The next morning another newspaper published an interview with Arsène Lupin, which was supposed to have taken place in a lobby at the opera. Arsène Lupin retorted in a letter to the editor, "'I share my prospective father-in-law's indignation to the full.' The sending out of the invitations was a gross breach of etiquette for which I am not responsible, but for which I wish to make a public apology. Why, sir, the date of the marriage is not yet fixed. My bride's father suggests early in May. She and I think that six weeks is really too long to wait. That which gave a special piquancy to the affair, and added immensely to the enjoyment of the friends of the family, was the Duke's well-known character, his pride in the uncompromising nature of his ideas and principles. Duke Jean was the last descendant of the Baron de Sarzeau, the most ancient family in Brittany. He was the lineal descendant of that Sarzeau who, upon marrying a Vendôme, refused to bear the new title which Louis XV forced upon him until after he had been imprisoned for ten years in the Bastille, and he had abandoned none of the prejudices of the old régime. In his youth he followed the Comte de Chambord into exile. In his old age he refused a seat in the chamber on the pretext that a Sarzeau could only sit with his peers. The incident stung him to the quick. Nothing could pacify him. He cursed Lupin in good round terms, threatened him with every sort of punishment, and rounded on his daughter. There, if you had only married! After all, you had plenty of chances. Your three cousins, Mussy, D'Amboise, and Caroche, are noblemen of good descent, allied to the best families, fairly well off, and they are still anxious to marry you. Why do you refuse them? Ah, oh, because Miss is a dreamer, a sentimentalist and because her cousins are too fat, or too thin, or too coarse for her. She was, in fact, a dreamer. Left to her own devices from childhood, she had read all the books of chivalry, all the colourless romances of olden time that littered the ancestral presses, and she looked upon life as a fairy-tale in which the beauteous maidens are always happy, while the others wait till death for the bridegroom which does not come. Why should she marry one of her cousins when they were only after her money, the millions which she had inherited from her mother. She might as well remain an old maid and go on dreaming. She answered gently, "'You will end by making yourself ill, father. Forget this silly business.' But how could he forget? Every morning some pinprick renewed his wound. Three days running, Angelique received a wonderful sheaf of flowers, with Arsène Lupin's card peeping from it. The duke could not go to his club, but a friend accosted him. "'That was a good one to-day.' "'What was?' "'Why, your son-in-law's latest. Haven't you seen it? Here, read it for yourself. Monsieur Arsène Lupin is petitioning the Council of State for permission to add his wife's name to his own, and to be known henceforth as Lupin de Sarzeau-Vendôme.' And the next day he read, "'As the young bride, by virtue of an unrepealed decree of Charles X, bears the title and arms of the Bourbon-Condés, of whom she is the heiress of line,' the eldest son of the Dupin de Sarzeau-Vendôme will be styled Prince de Bourbon-Condé. And the day after, an advertisement. 
exhibition of mademoiselle de sarzeau vendome's trousseau at messieurs blank great linen warehouse each article marked with initials l s v then an illustrated paper published a photographic scene the duke his daughter and his son-in-law sitting at a table playing three-handed auction bridge and the date also was announced with a great flourish of trumpets the fourth of may and particulars were given of the marriage settlement lupin showed himself wonderfully disinterested he was prepared to sign the newspapers said with his eyes closed without knowing the figure of the dowry all these things drove the old duke crazy his hatred of lupin assumed morbid proportions much as it went against the grain he called on the prefect of police who advised him to be on his guard you know the gentleman's ways he is employing one of his favourite dodges forgive the expression monsieur le duc but he is nursing you don't fall into the trap what dodge what trap asked the duke anxiously he is trying to make you lose your head and to lead you by intimidation to do something which you would refuse to do in cold blood still m arsene lupin can hardly hope that i will offer him my daughter's hand no but he hopes that you will commit to put it mildly a blunder what blunder exactly that blunder which he wants you to commit then you think monsieur le prefet i think the best thing you can do monsieur le duc is to go home or if all this excitement worries you to run down to the country and stay there quietly without upsetting yourself this conversation only increased the old duke's fears lupin appeared to him in the light of a terrible person who employed diabolical methods and kept accomplices in every sphere of society prudence was the watchword and life from that moment became intolerable the duke grew more crabbed and silent than ever and denied his door to all his old friends and even to angelique's three suitors her cousins de mussy d'amboise and de Caorche who were none of them on speaking terms with the others in consequence of their rivalry and who were in the habit of calling turn and turn about every week for no earthly reason he dismissed his butler and his coachman but he dared not fill their places for fear of engaging creatures of arsene lupin's and his own man hyacinthe in whom he had every confidence having had him in his service for over forty years had to take upon himself the laborious duties of the stables and the pantry come father said angelique trying to make him listen to common sense i really can't see what you are afraid of no one can force me into this ridiculous marriage well of course that's not what i'm afraid of what then father how can i tell an abduction a burglary an act of violence there is no doubt that the villain is scheming something and there is also no doubt that we are surrounded by spies one afternoon he received a newspaper in which the following paragraph was marked in red pencil. The signing of the marriage contract is fixed for this evening at the Sarzeau-Vendôme townhouse. It will be quite a private ceremony, and only a few privileged friends will be present to congratulate the happy pair. The witnesses to the contract, on behalf of Mademoiselle de Sarzeau-Vendôme, the Prince de la Rochefoucauld-Limour, and the Comte de Chartres, will be introduced by m arsene lupin to the two gentlemen who have claimed the honour of acting as his groomsmen namely the prefect of police and the governor of the sante prison ten minutes later the duke sent his servant hyacinthe to the post with three express messages at four o'clock in angelique's presence he saw the three cousins mussy fat heavy pasty-faced d'amboise slender fresh-coloured and shy Carche, short thin and unhealthy-looking all three old bachelors by this time lacking distinction in dress or appearance 
the meeting was a short one. The Duke had worked out his whole plan of campaign, a defensive campaign, of which he set forth the first stage in explicit terms. Angélique and I will leave Paris to-night for our place in Brittany. I rely on you, my three nephews, to help us get away. You, d'Amboise, will come and fetch us in your car, with the hood up. You, Mussy, will bring your big motor and kindly see to the luggage with Hyacinthe, my man. You, Carche, will go to the Gare d'Orléans and book our berths in the sleeping-car for Vannes by the 10.40 train. Is that settled? The rest of the day passed without incident. The Duke, to avoid any accidental indiscretion, waited until after dinner to tell Hyacinthe to pack a trunk and a portmanteau. Hyacinthe was to accompany them, as well as Angélique's maid. At nine o'clock all the other servants went to bed, by their master's order. At ten minutes to ten the Duke, who was completing his preparations, heard the sound of a motor-horn. The porter opened the gates of the courtyard. The Duke, standing at the window, recognized D'Amboise's landolette. "'Tell him I shall be down presently,' he said to Hyacinthe, "'and let Mademoiselle know.' In a few minutes, as Hyacinthe did not return, he left his room. But he was attacked on the landing by two masked men, who gagged and bound him before he could utter a cry. And one of the men said to him in a low voice, "'Take this as a first morning, Monsieur le Duc. If you persist in leaving Paris and refusing your consent, it will be a more serious matter.' And the same man said to his companion, "'Keep an eye on him. I will see to the young lady.' By that time two other confederates had secured the lady's maid, and Angélique, herself gagged, lay fainting on a couch in her boudoir. She came to almost immediately, under the stimulus of a bottle of salts held to her nostrils, and when she opened her eyes she saw bending over her a young man, in evening clothes, with a smiling and friendly face, who said, "'I implore your forgiveness, mademoiselle. All these happenings are a trifle sudden, and this behaviour rather out of the way.' but circumstances often compel us to deeds of which our conscience does not approve. Pray pardon me. He took her hand very gently and slipped a broad gold ring on the girl's finger, saying, There, now we are engaged. Never forget the man who gave you this ring. He entreats you not to run away from him, and to stay in Paris and await the proofs of his devotion. Have faith in him. He said all this in so serious and respectful a voice, with so much authority and deference, that she had not the strength to resist. Their eyes met. He whispered, "'The exquisite purity of your eyes! It would be heavenly to live with those eyes upon one. Now close them.' He withdrew. His accomplices followed suit. The car drove off, and the house in the Rue de Varennes remained still and silent until the moment when Angélique, regaining complete consciousness, called out for the servants. They found the duke, Hyacinthe, the lady's maid, and the porter and his wife, all tightly bound. A few priceless ornaments had disappeared, as well as the duke's pocket-book and all his jewellery, tie-pins, pearl studs, watch, and so on. The police were advised without delay. In the morning it appeared that, on the evening before, D'Amboise, when leaving his house in the motor-car, was stabbed by his own chauffeur and thrown, half-dead, into a deserted street. Mussy and Caorche had each received a telephone message, purporting to come from the Duke, countermanding their attendance. Next week, without troubling further about the police investigation, without obeying the summons of the examining magistrate, without even reading Arsène Lupin's letters to the papers on the Varennes flight, the Duke, his daughter, and his valet stealthily took a slow train for Vannes, and arrived one evening at the old feudal castle that towers over the headland of Sarzeau. 
the duke at once organized a defence with the aid of the breton peasants true medieval vassals to a man on the fourth day mussy arrived on the fifth Caorches, and on the seventh d'amboise whose wound was not as severe as had been feared the duke waited two days longer before communicating to those about him what now that his escape had succeeded in spite of lupin he called the second part of his plan he did so in the presence of the three cousins by a dictatorial order to angelique expressed in these peremptory terms all this bother is upsetting me terribly i have entered on a struggle with this man whose daring you have seen for yourself and the struggle is killing me i want to end it at all costs there is only one way of doing so angelique and that is for you to release me from all responsibility by accepting the hand of one of your cousins before a month is out you must be the wife of mussy Caorche, or d'amboise you have a free choice make your decision for four whole days angelique wept and entreated her father but in vain she felt that he would be inflexible and that she must end by submitting to his wishes she accepted whichever you please father i love none of them so i may as well be unhappy with one as with the other thereupon a fresh discussion ensued as the duke wanted to compel her to make her own choice she stood firm reluctantly and for financial considerations he named d'amboise the bans were published without delay from that moment the watch in and around the castle was increased twofold all the more inasmuch as lupin's silence and the sudden cessation of the campaign which he had been conducting in the press could not but alarm the duc de sarzeau vendome it was obvious that the enemy was getting ready to strike and would endeavour to oppose the marriage by one of his characteristic moves nevertheless nothing happened nothing two days before the ceremony nothing on the day before nothing on the morning itself the marriage took place in the mayor's office followed by the religious celebration in church and the thing was done then and not till then the duke breathed freely notwithstanding his daughter's sadness notwithstanding the embarrassed silence of his son-in-law who found the situation a little trying he rubbed his hands with an air of pleasure as though he had achieved a brilliant victory tell them to lower the drawbridge he said to hyacinthe and to admit everybody we have nothing more to fear from that scoundrel after the wedding breakfast he had wine served out to the peasants and clinked glasses with them they danced and sang at three o'clock he returned to the ground-floor rooms it was the hour for his afternoon nap he walked to the guard-room at the end of the suite but he had no sooner placed his foot on the threshold than he stopped suddenly and exclaimed what are you doing here d'amboise is this a joke d'amboise was standing before him dressed as a breton fisherman in a dirty jacket and breeches torn patched and many sizes too large for him the duke seemed dumbfounded he stared with eyes of amazement at that face which he knew and which at the same time roused memories of a very distant past within his brain then he strode abruptly to one of the windows overlooking the castle terrace and called angelique what is it father she asked coming forward where's your husband over there father said angelique pointing to d'amboise who was smoking a cigarette and reading some way off the duke stumbled and fell into a chair with a great shudder of fright oh i shall go mad but the man in the fisherman's garb knelt down before him and said look at me uncle you know me don't you i'm your nephew the one who used to play here in the old days the one whom you called jacob just think a minute here look at this scar yes yes stammered the duke i recognize you 
It's Jacques. But the other one... He put his hands to his head. And yet... No, it can't be. Explain yourself. I don't understand. I don't want to understand. There was a pause, during which the newcomer shut the window and closed the door leading to the next room. Then he came up to the old duke, touched him gently on the shoulder, to wake him from his torpor, and without further preface, as though to cut short any explanation that was not absolutely necessary, spoke as follows. Four years ago, that is to say, in the eleventh year of my voluntary exile, when I settled in the extreme south of Algeria, I made the acquaintance, in the course of a hunting expedition arranged by a big Arab chief, of a man whose geniality, whose charm of manner, whose consummate prowess, whose indomitable pluck, whose combined humour and depth of mind fascinated me in the highest degree. The Comte d'Andrézy spent six weeks as my guest. After he left, we kept up a correspondence at regular intervals. I also often saw his name in the papers, in the society and sporting columns. He was to come back, and I was preparing to receive him three months ago, when one evening as I was out riding, my two Arab attendants flung themselves upon me, bound me, blindfolded me, and took me, travelling day and night for a week, along deserted roads, to a bay on the coast, where five men awaited them. I was at once carried on board a small steam-yacht, which weighed anchor without delay. There was nothing to tell me who the men were, nor what their object was in kidnapping me. They had locked me into a narrow cabin, secured by a massive door, and lighted by a porthole protected by two iron crossbars. Every morning a hand was inserted through a hatch between the next cabin and my own, and placed on my bunk two or three pounds of bread, a good helping of food, and a flagon of wine, and removed the remains of yesterday's meals, which I put there for the purpose. From time to time, at night, the yacht stopped, and I heard the sound of the boat rowing to some harbour, and then returning, doubtless with provisions. Then we set out once more, without hurrying, as though on a cruise of people of our class, who travel for pleasure and are not pressed for time. Sometimes, standing on a chair, I would see the coastline through my porthole, too indistinctly, however, to locate it. And this lasted for weeks. One morning, in the ninth week, I perceived that the hatch had been left unfastened, and I pushed it open. The cabin was empty at the time. With an effort, I was able to take a nail-file from a dressing-table. Two weeks after that, by dint of patient perseverance, I had succeeded in filing through the bars of my porthole, and I could have escaped that way, only though I am a good swimmer, I soon grow tired. I had therefore to choose a moment when the yacht was not too far from the land. It was not until yesterday that, perched on my chair, I caught sight of the coast, and in the evening, at sunset, I recognized to my astonishment the outlines of the Chateau de Sarzeau, with its pointed turrets and its square keep. I wondered if this was the goal of my mysterious voyage. All night long we cruised in the offing, the same all day yesterday. At last this morning we put in at a distance which I considered favourable, all the more so as we were steaming through rocks under cover of which I could swim unobserved. But just as I was about to make my escape, I noticed that the shutter of the hatch, which they thought they had closed, had once more opened of itself and was flapping against the partition. I again pushed it ajar from curiosity. Within arm's length was a little cupboard which I managed to open, and in which my hand, groping at random, laid hold of a bundle of papers. This consisted of letters, letters containing instructions addressed to the pirates who held me prisoner. An hour later, when I wriggled through the porthole and slipped into the sea, I knew all. The reasons for my abduction, 
the means employed, the object in view, and the infamous scheme plotted during the last three months against the Duc de Sarzeau-Vendôme and his daughter. Unfortunately, it was too late. I was obliged, in order not to be seen from the yacht, to crouch in the cleft of a rock, and did not reach land until midday. By the time that I had been to a fisherman's cabin, exchanged my clothes for his, and come on here, it was three o'clock. On my arrival I learned that Angélique's marriage was celebrated this morning. End of chapter 8, part 1